a demon that manifests out of a shared belief system. <laughs> oh, you mean like school spirit? You mean like the spirit of your church or the spirit of your club or the spirit of your family or the spirit of your city or the spirit of your nation? Tell them look out for my worldview. Cloudy when you sinking, got you thinking it's a whirlpool. Caesar in your pockets, you can't see who's in your pockets. But Stevie's inner visions touch your eyes and make the world move. Wifey bob her head and make her curls move. Crown jewel is character and this ain't immortality with fairy dust. Never land, never say I never gave you hands if I can't give them back. Welcome to the Belfast podcast, um, dedicated to giving people a better relationship with the Bible. There we go. There's the new introduction. <clears throat> okay. Uh, yeah. So today is going to be interesting. We're going to try something we've never done before. Um, this is very much in the vein of uh, Paul Vanderclay, which if you don't know him, I've referenced him a few times on this channel. Uh, you're going to get pretty acquainted with him. If you don't follow him already, I'll link his channel in the description. And Paul, if you're watching this, thank you very much. I appreciate you a lot. Hopefully one day we can have a conversation. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, maybe both of us can talk to you at the same time. So that'd yeah. be fun. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> we're going to do a reaction partially to a video he put out. Uh, what was it? A few days ago. No, no, it was longer than that. It was... When was this published? January 10th. So two weeks ago. Yeah, on, well, the title of the video uh, Vanner Clay made is Secularists Discover Spiritual Forces, Find Social Media and the Culture War. So what's our goal with this discussion, reaction, commentary? Um, I guess... Part of what I want to do, and Daniel, you can have tell me your kind of goals with this discussion that you have yeah. as well. <clears throat> Part of my goal is to convince you, the listener, of a reality that is not just materialistic, um, and that's easier to do with someone who's a theist or a Christian, but also, as Vander Clay is going to point out here in a minute, that to do the bridge work of explaining our faith and what's happening um, and between the world of the Bible and our current world takes understanding the current world better and the world of the Bible better. And there's way more overlap than you might think. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I think I find most interesting about this reaction that Vanderclay is doing to a, a video by Rebel Wisdom, which if you aren't familiar, they're very much in the vein of Jordan Peterson, Petersonian thinking. I wouldn't define, and I don't think these guys who have the conversation Vanderclay's reacting to would define themselves as Christians or theists even. They're probably most correctly agnostics. So they're probably not opposed to a supernatural being per se. Um, whether they call him God or think of him as the God of the Bible is a very different question. But the way they talk about certain things going on in the culture, certain things going on in communities and in people. There's spiritual spiritual forces, and I know I'm unnerving some of you even with that phrase, hopefully not by the end of the video, going on here and what we see in our current day. So part of this is an apologetic frame that I'm trying to use to help break open some of our boxes of, of definitions. Um, 
So I guess that's more my goal is to convince us of a non purely naturalistic frame, convince us outside of that, and then to use these reactions as a way to talk about certain things in the Bible that I think are very real to our modern day. And in the short of it, to help us understand what we actually mean when we say spiritual warfare. Dana, what do you think? What are your, you've listened to the Vanderclay conversation. You haven't yeah. heard my other stuff that I'm going to bring up. So that's going to be fun for me. Yeah. I've only listened to the Vanderclay stuff. Um, I listened to part of it yesterday and part of it today because I was just driving back and forth or working out or whatever. Um, and for, and this will be something that we'll definitely explore in more detail later, but for a very long time, I've struggled with Paul's language of powers and principalities and authorities. Um, not because I don't believe in a spiritual reality beyond the physical. I grew up Pentecostal, so that was very deeply rooted in the tradition that I grew up in. Um, but the way in which the Pentecostal tradition references those things always seemed, for lack of a better term, cheesy and shallow and the way that um, Paul Vanderclay frames it here connected the dots for me in a way that breeds a lot of sophistication into it and as I said to you um, directly before we got got on the call um, I I see it as, at minimum, this is a proven sociological, psychological reality. At maximum, is a spiritual reality. And hopefully, by the end of this conversation, I'll convince you that it's a very spiritual reality. And and I am fully convinced that it is. Um, and the implications thereof are very broad. And I think very crucial. And to go a little bit further, um, and again, we'll probably come back to this later, but I was listening to some N.T. Wright yesterday. Um, and the way he references the historical context, sociopolitical and cultural and religious, um, I think that can track very nicely using the things that Vander Clay explains um, onto our current situation as well. And we probably won't get into much of the current analysis, uh, but I think we'll probably do enough that people can extrapolate from what we talk about into our current political situation, Yeah, not just in the U.S., but globally, but I think particularly in the U.S. Yeah. So. And I think more or less my, aside from what I've already said, my goal here is to lay the table out for you to make an argument that, that what Vanderclay is going to talk about here, what rebelism is going to talk about here about um, this conception of what's called an egregore, and we'll get to that in a minute, actually has very deep biblical roots and has very wide implications for how we conduct ourselves as Christians in a uh, postmodern world and in a very spiritual, spiritual world. So, I guess without further ado, let's start with the Vanderclay video. I just want to give everyone a taste of 
how he introduces the subject and kind of what is going on here. So, um, yeah. Hi, this is Paul. This is oh, a spirit. Hi, this is Paul. Someone sent me an email and told me to check out the Rebel Wisdom video, COVID, and the sense. Sorry. Okay. Just for everyone listening, and Daniel, for you, um, if you have something to say, because I'm controlling the screen, just tell me to pause, okay. and then you can comment, and we can discuss. Yeah. It's making crisis with BJ Campbell and said actually he got it from an estuary group where one of the one of someone who is in grand rapids watches it and mentioned oh this paul would be all over this video and i hadn't watched the video i can't watch everything that comes out on youtube obviously but boy were they right so we have to take a look at this because i and i think you will immediately see how this pertains to a lot of what i've been doing over the last few years Part of why this channel started was I could see the real disconnect between the world of the Bible and the world we live in today. And it's quite naturally a pastor's job to try to bridge that gap in preaching and teaching. And what is required is better understanding of both worlds and a certain language to bridge them. And what I discovered in this was... Okay, I just want to make a point on that real quick. Understanding the bridge between the two worlds. I think part of what's been lost and what we'll get to in the Heiser conversations or um, presentations is how much the, and this is something Vander Clay also gets into, but how much the modernist questions of say scientific reality have dominated the debate of apologetics and of biblical reliability that they have moved to the side bigger questions about meaning and how we are to live our lives um things like ethics uh, moral interpretations right just look at somebody like jordan peterson for instance mm -hmm. his biblical lectures have millions and millions of views and he's lecturing to a secular audience about the moral and psychological realities and lessons in the Bible. Now that's not, and he would never claim this, a holistic frame of what the Bible is talking about. Yeah. But I think, and Vanderclay's made videos about this too, I think it's very telling that Peterson can get people not just listening, but very interested in what the Bible has to say when he sort of sidelines questions of even historicity, mm -hmm. si what what you could frame as physical concordism. So if God created the world in seven days, how exactly did it happen? Things like that, which seem to get muddled in our debates about biblical reliability. So I guess my point is to say modernism as a, frame in Western society post-enlightenment and biblical, the fight for biblical relevance have both been sucked into that funnel. And we now, as a consequence, and maybe as a good 
this is maybe one of the few things I'll argue, as a good consequence of postmodernism are seeing the limitations of that kind of framework. And that's where we get into something like this. No, I, I totally agree. And I think um, that's, as I was listening to this earlier today, and even over the last, I don't know, few months, um, I, I started in a place of very sharp critique of postmodernism simply because it rejects all forms of um, empiricism, right? Mm -hmm. We're not able to actually measure things if everything is relative. Um, and I can prove that not every, like an absolute relativist can't actually make any claim. Yeah. Um, that's just a philosophical reality. Um, but the, um, the postmodernists critique of empiricism does have weight mm -hmm. when used in moderation. And so I think it's immature to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, I think, yeah. It's one of those things where the critique might be correct, but the conclusion then drawn by them is, I would say, utterly absurd. Absolutely. And I think um, uh, Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro in their recent conversation, um, they talk about this, how um, postmodernism talking about like, the need for context in order to frame things and how that can go in to infinity in every single possible way you can consider one specific situation is very true and very relevant. But then to ironically essentialize one aspect of reality, power structure and control of the means of production um, becomes you know, they're, they're anti-essentialist until it comes to those things. And mm -hmm. part of the critique is then um, the postmodernist thinks implicitly, not explicitly, but implicitly that they are free of the very structure that they're critiquing. We'll talk about and, that here soon. Yes. Yeah. So anyway. So, yes, um, I don't have a, a current note on this exact timestamp. I think they start to define kind of what's going on with this egregore, um, which we haven't defined yet, but we'll get there. So I'm holding you in suspense. Making. It's real stuck in it. <laughs> it's, it's that bad. It's pretty terrifying and strange. So in this conversation, BJ goes deep and theoretical and introduces a new concept. Okay, sorry. I, I think I just need to frame a little bit of what they're talking about. They're talking about uh, what, they, what Rebel Wisdom is titled the sense-making crisis, um, which is actually very good with what you just said as okay the frames for everything have been so contextualized to you as a person or you as a community or you as a person within a certain community that um any level of objectivism seems to have gone away vander clay uses the example um and the person in the interview uses the example of like covid so you go to two different doctors, you're going to get two different answers on how to treat COVID. You watch two different newscasts, you're going to get two different sides of how bad COVID actually is or what is precipitating more of it. Um, do masks work? Do they not work? Right? I'm not saying these for certain political reasons. I'm just saying this is an example of, okay, well, what's our baseline here? What's yeah. our foundation? Right? Um, absolute relativism has caused absolute anxiety because... Mm -hmm. 
we don't have a baseline that we can then use to operate off of. And that's how, I mean, if you want to talk evolutionary theory, that's how we as humans have evolved to the point that we are, right? Is that we were able to predictably produce certain results based on certain behaviors. Mm -hmm. That's what places us at the top of the food chain. So if everything's relative, we, we lose that anyway. So, yes, exactly. And part of what they're having this conversation about is everyone seems to be trapped in this because there are no uh, cohering frames for everyone. And they talk about media and in, in, in some examples here, which we can discuss if you would like. There is no unifying heuristic. There's no unifying lens. So people making sense of certain things, whether it be COVID or race relations in the U.S. or um, what do we do about inequalities? What do we do about police? What do we do about all these hot button issues? The guy in here brings up his articles on gun control back in 2018, right? What do yeah. we do about gun control? Well, if we follow Stephen King, you're going to get a different answer than someone like Tucker Carlson, right? Yeah. Like, and I say that all in, I love Stephen King, although, you know, he has a very, very strict stance on certain like things because he seems to be more liberal. That's fine. But again, that's just an example of what's going on here. How do we make sense of these certain issues, these certain things that we say are essential on both sides as yeah. uh, people in a nation and a community? So we've lost the gyroscope, let's say. So what do we do about that? And what then has happened? Well, here comes the agricor. In this conversation, BJ goes deep and theoretical and introduces a new concept, the egregore, which was originally an occult idea, meaning a non-physical entity that arises from a collective group of people. Now, when he said this, anybody who's been listening to my channel for a good long time knows that one of my go-to illustrations for materialist modern people about the word spirit is school spirit because most of us know school spirit is real we know it impacts let's say performance behavior all of us have a sense of school spirit of the school we went to if we went with enough people we have a sense of participation in school spirit we have the sense of the creation of spirit from human beings to collect in to, to collect a school spirit and the same just scales up for nations and cultures and cities and groups. And this is sort of what Jonathan Peugeot was talking to, I forget who he's talking to, a story writer, when he says each conversation has an angel. And again, when you, when you say it that way, it's, it's, it's going to be tough. It's not exactly going to work easily or well. So now this egregore... Again, I'm just going to use it for the sake of this conversation because I haven't had enough time to do any background research on what that word involves because we'll the story of the word, the story. Okay, we'll stop there for a second. <clears throat> school spirit, the spirit of the school, of the spirit of your congregation, right? The spirit of the nation, the spirit of the newscast you watch, the spirit of your group of people, right? Um, what is that? Well, in a, 
we'll, and we'll get Vanderclay talks about this later, but in a modernist frame, physical is the preeminent factor, right? What is physical is dominant. What is physical is at the foundation. That would then create the ethereal spirit of the thing, right? That's basically the argument yeah. that's being made in the egregore is yeah. you have a group, a set of people, um, and you can define that group in a multiplicity of ways. This is the Peterson argument, right? Um, school is different than church, is different than racial category, is different than nation. All these things are groups or subgroups of, and you belong to groups and subgroups of people, right? Yeah. Um, but I'm trying to think of a, of a better example. So like, um, let's talk about the spirit of a concert. Well, this is something Peterson likes to talk about a lot is the religious nature of music and meaning and all these things. We talked about this at length on the new, uh, Rogan episode. What's the spirit of a pop punk concert? What does that create? Who's there? What's the music being played? What's said in between the songs? What's yeah. the atmosphere? We use all these other words. What's the atmosphere? What's yeah. the vibe like? Um, yeah. God, I just sounded so old. Um, well, another example. But yeah, um, all that... the, but I guess the point is in this naturalist frame, we talk about it in a sense of like people creating the spirits yeah. or the entities. Um, and even later they use the word demonic which is interesting an interesting yeah. choice mm -hmm. then the question becomes okay but did we create that yeah go on uh, i was just gonna say i mean a similar thing happens with with sports too i think this mm -hmm. is yeah um same example i used last time we had a conversation um college football um, not only do you have like the team spirit, but then you also have the spirit of the fans that are in the stands and how that, um, you, I mean, you hear sports yeah. commentators talk up all the time about how the atmosphere that the fans bring affects the players on the field mm -hmm. as though it's a spiritual force being transferred from us onto the players. Um, and I mean, there are all other This is what happens of, at a concert. This is why you yeah. want to see them perform. Yeah, because you want part of their spirit to infect you in hopefully a good way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you talk about? Like, what do you talk about when you go out of that experience? Oh, my gosh, dude, I felt so you this happens when you watch a good movie, the spirit of the movie. Yeah, I was captivated. I had I didn't pay, care about anything else except what was going on on the screen. Yeah, I didn't think about time. I wasn't worried about, you know, what I had to do afterwards. I was enveloped. I was engrossed. Yeah. You were captured, possessed yeah. by the spirit of the thing. That's the same thing going on in sports, right? Yeah. So it's very true. All the time talking about atmosphere. And so, I like your word, you transfer. That's so, so yeah. true because I know. people talk about playing it. Take the Chiefs, for example. So. I'm from Kansas City. I live in Missouri. Yeah. People always talk about how hard it is to play at Arrowhead because it's so loud. Mm -hmm. Literally the loudest stadium in the NFL. Yeah. 
okay, well, there's a certain spirit. Yeah. About can- there's a reason. Think about this. There's a reason we call it chief's kingdom. Think about the words we use for this. Yeah. The kingdom yeah. of the chiefs. Well, and What's going the, on here? And think about this too, right? When other teams come, you move into that team's spiritual territory. It becomes harder to play because the atmosphere or the spirit present at the game is different than you're used to. And it's to. antagonistic to you as the yep. visiting team. Yep. We'll get, um, we'll get there later. And, and so, but what's interesting, right, is all we've used here is religious language grafted onto the modern empiricist sense. Mm-hmm. What I think is very fascinating is the way he turns that around. Yes. And we'll get there in a second. I want, if we haven't convinced you already about the spirit of, let's say, a population, then Peterson might help us in how certain things can possess you. And he uses that word specifically, I think, on, for, on purpose. You can be possessed by spirits as an individual. And he's not even talking spiritually here about demons or angels or anything of that nature. But I think this is interesting. We can, I just want to play the whole clip. It's like three minutes. And then you can give your dues, Daniel. I just want, I just want this to be a parallel track of, of thought yeah. that can maybe help convince you of this re- reality. And I think it is a reality. Already experienced what it's. They give, the channel gives this thing at the beginning, but some of you undoubtedly have already experienced what it's like to be possessed by a particularly stupid idea, you know. So maybe you've grown out of one or two of the stupid ideas that possessed you, or maybe you're possessed by an attraction to someone you can't control, or you can't control your eating behavior, or you, you know, you're a pushover when it comes to interpersonal interactions because you're too agreeable, or you fly off the handle and fight and. You know, none of this is really under your control. And so all of those things that, that, that manifest themselves, not only in your behaviors, but in your perceptions, your perceptions themselves, you know, they tend to take on embodied form and use you as the vehicle for their activity. They tend to take on embodied form and use you as the vehicle. Don't forget that phrase. We'll come back to that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and... When you're thinking about something like anger, for example, think about how it works, because it's quite peculiar. Um, What must someone generally do? How must someone generally act if you're going to be angry at them? They have to be irritating, right? You know, they have to provoke you in some way. Well, the mere fact that you perceive what they're doing as irritating or provoking doesn't ensure that anyone else would have thought about it as irritating or provoking, or that that's what they meant, or that that's what's happening. And my point is, my point is, it's very important to think about these complexes of ideas as sub-personalities, because otherwise you really don't get what they're like. If you're angry, if you have a proclivity towards anger, especially if it's an unthinking proclivity, anything that someone says might irritate you. And it isn't like they say something and you think about it and then you get irritated. It's like you perceive the person as irritating. You know, maybe it's just the way they hold their mouth or something. It, it, it can be very, very subtle. And you might say, well, it's not me, it's you. It's not that I'm irritated by you. It's that you're irritating. And that, you know, that's a very difficult thing to settle. Because the reality is somewhere between the subjective and the objective, right? A lot of arguments that you'll have with people throughout your life are about exactly that. Am I, are you irritating or am I oversensitive? It's like, well, you know, we're going to hash that out for a good long time before we figure it out. 
But the point is, is that if you're possessed by an emotional state or a motivational state or an idea or some kind of complex you'll see the world through its eyes and then the facts reveal themselves to you through the lens of that particular set of ideas I'm going to play that again or some kind of complex you'll buy that out for a good long time before we figure it out but the point is, is that if you're possessed by an emotional state or a motivational state or an idea or some kind of complex you'll see the world through its eyes and then the facts reveal themselves to you through the lens of that particular set of ideas so it's a very frightening idea because you know we like to think of ourselves as masters of our own house which is completely clueless because it's obvious if you watch yourself for like a month that you hardly ever do what you tell yourself to do and you're liable to do all sorts of other things that you don't even want to do you know because you say well I'm going to go to the gym three times a week and I'm not going to drink you know, and maybe there's this person I'm not going to associate with and then, you know, you don't go to the gym and you find that person and you go out and drink with them and you think, what the hell's going on, you know and, but it's, 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 you, you're not the sort of person that will do what you say and so, like, what sort of person are you? well, that's a psychoanalytic question it's a deep one because you're a peculiar thing and there's parts of you that are really, really, really old and you know, the, the sort of naive you, the naive young you that you think of yourself as is like a little piece of flotsam in an ocean of complexity and the ocean of complexity is you and part of diving down into the depths is to start to understand what it means to be human and like whatever that means, it's the one thing you can say about it for sure is that it's bloody peculiar I do what I want or no, how's, how's it go? I don't do what I want to do, and what I don't want to do, I do. Where have we heard that before? Possessed by a spirit. Uh, Keep in mind, we're not talking about even demonic possession here. No. We're talking about... Although I think that's real, but that's kind of beside the point at this moment. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I have anything more to add. It's hard to add to him. So like it, it really is. I mean, embodied form and use you for the vehicle of their activity. I mean, he's using these. It's religious. Spiritual. It is spiritual, spiritual and religious. Verging on occult phrases to define psychological realities, which is the 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 thing that I stated at the very beginning of all of this is that at the minimum, this is a psychological, sociological reality. Mm -hmm. Because, and I, and I like his example of anger, or we can take mm -hmm. lust. Yeah. Here I am adding on, but just to make the point. Okay, or I'll, let's, let's take something a little bit more... <clears throat> Um, a little bit more obvious. Drunkenness. Now it's induced by a substance. Yeah. Okay, so I'll use an example, and this is a slight spoiler. You haven't seen Breaking Bad, have you? I haven't, no. Okay, well, I'm going to spoil a little bit of it for you, but That's it's not, not too much. I'm in season four right now, and I was watching it last night. And there's a scene 
oh my gosh, how much am I going to explain? How much am I going to spoil? Um, so Walter is hanging out with his brother-in-law, Hank, who's a DEA agent. Well, we know that Walter's doing things that DEA doesn't like, and he's trying to hide that, obviously, from his brother-in-law. So um, this is actually right before the famous scene of I'm the one who knocks for anyone who's familiar with the series. But Walter gets drunk at dinner with Hank and the family. And later, and he says some things that he probably shouldn't have said in front of his brother-in-law that tip him off to other things that he has suspected. I'm trying to be vague for reasons. Yeah. Yeah. What happens the next morning is he wakes up with his wife, Skylar, and they have kind of an estranged relationship at this point in the series, but nonetheless, he goes, he wakes up and she says, what was all that about last night? Referring to what he said during dinner. And he goes, oh man, I don't know. I don't know what came over me. Whoever that was last night, that wasn't me. What do you mean that wasn't you? You were doing it. Well, you were possessed by something. Maybe it was the alcohol. Maybe it was your hubris. Maybe it was pride or hurt pride. Maybe it was insecurities. Maybe it was all of those things. All those things that manifested inside of you and took control, let's say, of your mouth. Yeah. yeah. And um, I you told possessed. you before You this. were possessed. Yeah. yeah, and I told you before this that I think this has some pretty stark um, implications for debates about predestination versus free will and mm-hmm. human agency. Um, and those are questions I think we need to lay a bit more groundwork before we get into. Okay. But, but put a pin in that, right? Because okay. that phrase right there, something came over me, that wasn't me. Mm-hmm. That's, that's interesting. Okay, so I want to play this, and then I think we're going to get to switch over to something else again quickly. Um, maybe. We'll have a few more things in the Van and Clay video I want to get to before I switch over to Heiser. Um, and this is uh, this is for you, Jason Pedoshnik, because I promised. I hope I think you're probably listening to this, and if you are, look up uh, Van der Clay. And uh, I promise you, for a long time, I'm going to talk about Heiser. Well, here, here, here it is. So we'll get there in a minute. Um, I hope you're smiling and giggling at that, Jason, if, if, if you heard me. Um, all right. So in this section, I believe uh, Vander Clay is starting to talk about how we get bad certain information. They use the analogy of nodes in a network, which we're going to get to here in a minute. Of um, he, The guy in the video, uh, in the interview, used the example of uh, neurons in the brain Neurons Lots. in the brain, I thought, was the thing. It was the thing that connected it for me. Okay. I think we'll get there, but I'll just play this and we'll we'll see where it goes. Yeah. Per bound of available information vastly exceeds anybody's ability to process it all, right? So, um, it used to be that there was a world, and then our visions of the world were mitigated by media organizations and books and publishers and things like that. And they were the gatekeepers of truth. And was there truth? Or our religious systems now and in the past? Always right. 
not necessarily, but the fact that the truth was conveyed was something that everybody agreed on made it easier for us to interact as a society, even if perhaps we were interacting in the wrong way. Like there's a case that we never should have gone to Vietnam and had that war. And the reason why we went there was because the sense makers were duping us, for instance. But the fact that there was a shared narrative about what was going on did allow people to come together and achieve a task. Even if the task is bad, they can at least get together and achieve a task. But at the same time, there's a social layer of it that is underappreciated, in my opinion. A lot of the folks, you know, talking about the, um, the social dilemma and all that kind of stuff, screaming about algorithms. Well, yes, but people also self-sort. Okay, sorry. I, I just think a little bit of commentary is interesting for those who haven't watched the full video. So what he's getting into now is a point that he made just before this where and he makes it a little bit here where we have people because they're talking about the sense-making crisis. How do we use our gyroscopes in this new world of availability of information? Because it used to be we had certain news organizations or churches or institutions um, and not all bad, by the way, that like fed into what we thought of as a group, as a nation, as societies and as peoples but they were limited in scope. Now the limitation, and he uses the example, I like this, is not how many newspaper publications are there, but how many people there are, because we all have access to have a voice now because of the internet, which I'm not against. Obviously I'm using it to propagate what I think, but it makes it so much more difficult than communally to make sense of what's going on, which is why you see all the fractions we have today. among people who are like-minded. And the greatest counterexample to ha I have to the idea that Facebook is the one that's doing this is a Reddit, right? I mean, Reddit's algorithm is extremely simple. You join a group of like-minded people and the like-minded people either upvote or downvote an article and the upvotes get to the top and the downvotes go to the bottom, which tightens the echo chamber inside what you joined. And there's nothing else to it than than that. It's their algorithm is extremely simple. It's not AI. It's not driven to make you go insane. It's not driven to engage traffic. All it is, is just, do you like this or not? It's just the thumbs up, thumbs down. So the fact that there is even a thumbs up, thumbs down is a social algorithm that's baked into human minds. And it is, in my opinion, more powerful than any kind of Facebook algorithm that drives engagement that they could have. Okay. That's community. And we've always had it. So the church, whereas on one hand we think of them as an institution, the church has always been a community. And the media, they've always been a community. This, the communities mold us and we either gain status or we lose status depending on whether or not we are participating in the groupthink of the community. And so the old model, which... What happens to you if you wear a um, Bill's jersey to the Chiefs game? Nothing good. You lose status. Yeah. Because you are the enemy. Yeah. Imagine that the, the person just sees the truth... This is key right here, I think. Yeah, when he draws the same diagram later. 
person just sees the truth, well, there's modernity for you. When in fact, this truth is coming at them through the communities, filtering the communities, what is salient, what is relevant, all of this stuff. And again, this is the stuff we've been talking about a lot with respect to this sense-making culture. Okay, so there's two layers. Any, any comments on that? Uh, not at the moment. Okay. There's that algorithm. So when we start pivoting over to getting all our news from social feeds, then it becomes extremely important for media agencies to feed an uh, echo chamber what it wants to hear. Because the moment they feed their own echo chamber something that it doesn't want to hear, they lose subscriptions or they don't get clicks. That was the state of the thing when I stepped into the uh, looking at gun policy thing. It, was, it became very obvious that what they were doing is feeding people what they wanted to hear. Okay, I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit. Several things is first off, the neuron doesn't know what the with a wife and 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 in relationship with adult children, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I'll gain insight. But at what way of thinking about what we're doing is we are well, we're working on something. Do we know what we're working on? No, we don't. We're going to get into that soon. But I love this sort of level up metaphor that he's working. The the rub is this. Several things is first off, the neuron doesn't know what the brain's thinking. The neuron exists at a level down from the brain. That's key. I think it's key that we explain this point. Okay, go ahead. Because of that, that I'll section. Let, I'll let you explain middle. this. Yeah. So essentially, because um, this is the, the analogy that really solidified the larger concept for me. Essentially, the argument that's being made is that in the social media complex or in the larger um, economics, uh, the economy of ideas, right? Mm -hmm. We are all neurons and we either, like he said earlier, upvote or downvote particular ideas um, or on social media, particular posts and stories and um, concepts and content. And depending on what we as a community upvote and downvote more, that's what gains, it, it levels up, like as we are neurons in the brain firing, right? The neurons switch on or off, depending on the inputs and what that neuron deems appropriate to do with that input. That's why we can react to things faster than our brains can process them, because they do, um, to a certain degree, have a mind of their own, but only within the context of that one specific function. It's when the, the neuron cannot grasp the complexity of the whole brain. And as we are all neurons in the brain, that is the economy of ideas or whatever label you want to put on it, we can't grasp the complex thought that the economy of ideas is actually having. You have anything to add or clarify? No, that's, that's a perfect, you put it very well. The neuron doesn't know what the brain's thinking. The neuron's just processing, you know, I remember when, when JP Marceau talked about panpsychism. Now I'm still not a panpsychist, but I have a better understanding about why people have this idea. How much consciousness does that little neuron have? 
but it certainly isn't aware of the brain. And those of you who follow me on Twitter know where I'm going in this because I watched this video and I thought, oh my goodness, we talked about this a few months ago. And we'll get there in this video. So if you and I and everybody else were participating as neurons in a brain, we could not even understand, comprehend the thought that the brain is having because that thought is one level up. Now, now this is sort of where we get to when we talk about the monarchic vision and our imagined mastery of the world. And, and the deep frustration we have when the rest of our other little thinking neurons here don't go along with what we imagine the world is for and about and should be about and what its end should be. Right. It's like a Kurzweil singularity thing. It's like the next level intelligence. How would you even know that there's a next level intelligence? You couldn't talk to it. Right. And this, I'm going to skip ahead here again, just a bit. But this next level intelligence that they're referring to is what then creates the agricor in this line of thinking. Yes. The next level intelligence becomes the egregor. Yep. And because it is the that way of framing the egregor as this greater consciousness that inhabits those in the in the let's say community. Yeah. That well, is, in, in their terms, created by the community that yeah. then inhabits them. Well, see, and um, in their terms, and this is something that we probably haven't touched on, is that it's cyclical, right? Mm -hmm. The egregore informs the community that then informs the egregore. And, um, but within the materialistic empir empiricist perspective, the community is the thing that actually creates the egregore in the first place, because the material breathes the spiritual out not the other mm -hmm. way around okay should i play yeah i'll play this part this part's important this part's amazing Singularity thing it's like the next level intelligence how would you even know that there's a next level intelligence you couldn't talk to it right so postulate for a moment that if you could web enough people together in a like and share network that they would exceed a certain level to where their their network itself was effectively a thinking superorganism one level up from them and that there's no way you could know that one way or another like the thing this is what happens when things go viral by the way mm -hmm. thinking super organism now being a pastor well you would call this its body and in church language so it would good. be the body of christ but the body of christ has a head and the head is christ and now head means not only the, the metaphor of this on here but also head means source as in the headwaters of the Nile. So, I mean, he starts talking and it's like, oh, look, we're doing theology. And we didn't even realize it. Okay. Any comments on that? So I'm going to skip ahead just a bit. 
Yeah. Um, uh, oh gosh, no. You you want you want this part, don't you? Yeah, I do. Damn I really it. do want this All part. Right. No, 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 that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Because <laughs> you say when he draws it again. All right. Well. All right. Yeah, when he draws it again, it's crazy. You do not have the position to see. Pause real quick. This entire. So he's talking about because the difference between first person and third person perspective, mm -hmm. we don't usually, we can only see in a first person perspective, right? We can only see from the perspective of ourselves, but we oftentimes envision that we can see from a perspective other than ourselves onto the situation that we're in. And what he's saying here is that because we're a part of Christ's body in this analogy, at least as Christians, um, or we're a part of the egregores community that it's derived from in the materialistic perspective. We can't see the actual truth taking place from a third person perspective. This, is, become... this, get, this goes back to what we talked about last week in Augustine's artistic interpretation about yes. us maybe being able to infer on what the truth is being communicated, but yes. how we need to be humble in that yep. communication. Yep, it's all connected. This doesn't mean that there isn't absolute truth. Yeah, because, I mean, if you look at this diagram, the truth's there. It's just we don't have the capacity to understand the complexity of it in its fullness because we're a part of it. We see in a mirror dimly. Higher thing, even though to some degree... That's what we're trying to do in this conversation. But with sufficient humility, you realize this is only sort of my third humility. personal perspective because my first personal perspective starts way down here and it's going to be trying to see all of this and maybe look up and see the head or look back and see the head etc 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 i again someone sent me this video and said so someone i was in my estuary group said paul's really got to see that video and they were right postulate that if you had some people in one social network some other people in another social network those two social networks might have these kind of internet entities that are thinking different things and are competing with each other for overall available brain space in the human population to survive. Wow. Again, this is just straight out of the New Testament. You have principalities and powers. We're getting there. Or how maybe. about We're getting you have there. the book of Daniel? We'll You've get back got to the this. prince of Persia standing in the way of the angel that's trying to get to little old Daniel. Well, how is the prince of Persia standing in the way of getting to little old Daniel? Oh, shoot, did I d destroy that? Um, that one board? I don't think so. Here it is. You have to, in many, we, we experience this all the time with our different little, he's calling them echo chambers. 
how to convince your father or your mother or your son or your daughter or your neighbor or the citizen that is within your gates of a different perspective. You have to go through their principality. They have a patterned way of thinking. They have a patterned way of belief. Now, again, in modernity, belief is so um, abstracted, but they have a patterned way of life. They have a patterned way of behavior that is dominated by their principality. And the only way that that is going to change is if a stronger principality comes and unseats it. Red. This is the gospel. Unseating the power of and the principality that is Caesar and that is Rome and replacing it with the power and principality that is Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us. Removing one egregore for the creator of all things. It's going to change is if a stronger principality... This is also the... I said gospel because I think that's more correct, but this is also the mission of apologetics by the way countering and recountering arguing to unseat comes and unseats it red pill bread pill conversion transformation a stronger power has to take hold of it and exercise it why is it that i keep calling jordan peterson the unauthorized exorcist well, because what is saw. he doing? He is exercising people who have been in domination. They have had a place in the matrix, a place in the super organism, and they are pulled from that and they are brought into another one. I mean, he is trans, these conversations, this is what drove me crazy when I first started doing this, because my other my other clergy couldn't see because they're all in dominant within basically so deep within the church organism that they couldn't see out of it. This is all, all New Testament language that's going on here. This is my concern with modern apologetics, too. We spent today, now I'm, I'm going to talk about this class negatively probably quite a bit, to be honest with you. Not because I dislike it or I dislike my professor, but because I think it's stuck in a modernistic argumentative frame of yeah. something like, so today we spent our whole class talking about the first chapter and two of Tim Keller's book, um, uh, oh my gosh, Reason, for God. Reason for God. That title by itself is so modern. Yep. But anyway. <laughs> yep. Proving why all religions are not the same, which I think is a fair argument, and uh, the problem of evil. I think both of those are probably still worth fighting about um, and still worth knowing arguments for. But it's still stuck in this, how do you give me proofs and argument your way logically to a sufficient um, like physical locale to understand this certain conception? It's an, it's an empiricist framework. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I have one more thing here in this conversation I want to play. I'll just let it go because my other timestamp is 15 seconds away. So there's some talk in like very there dark uh, 
We'll get to the intellectual circles that I traffic in where they're, they're calling these things egregores because that's what an egregore is. Like the, the definition of an egregore was it was a, a kind of demon that manifests out of a shared belief system. A demon that manifests out of a shared <clears> belief <throat> system. The node and the network and the brain. Yeah. Feeding so, back each other like you just talked about. The group feeds into the thing above this demonic collective force that then refeeds back into the group mm -hmm. a demon that manifests out of a shared belief system oh you mean like school spirit you mean like the spirit of your church or the spirit of your club or the spirit of your family or the spirit of your city or the spirit of your nation or the spirit of your tribe or the spirit of your political party or the spirit of your discord server or the spirit of your conversation. Or the spirit of the age. Which many yeah. ages have had different spirits, but they all yeah. seem to come back. Well, right? we'll get into that in a little bit. I've got some stuff from right on that. Yeah. It's a manifest out of a shared. But now, again, we this, imagine... This is so important. Uh, whiteboard work like I want you to. Now, in a materialist framework, we imagine that this is emanation from below. Oh, I'm sorry, not emanation. See, it's really bad when I don't say the right words. This is emergence from below because matter is foundational and spirit is imagined to be derivative. And so here, this egregore is what these people are creating. Now, the reason that he's saying it this way is because he is deep, again, within a modernist culture. And we don't have, it's not that we don't have language. We've banished language because actually this egregore, he had to pull it back from another source and bring it back into our period and say, oh, look, this is a spirit that is, but here's the question. Is it emergence or has this spirit lived before? Are there, in fact, a world of spirits that are, in fact, competing against each other and vying for, let's say, Remember back in the old days. Okay. So did we create it or was it already there? I asked this question earlier. I said we'd get there and we're there. Yeah. I think a good way to think about this is Lord of the Rings. And I think that's where I'll go next. If you don't okay. Mind. Go um, there. And then I have another story analogy that I think may help um, cool. explain this too. Okay. This is why Tolkien's a genius. Yeah. What are the rings given to all the races? To give them powers, principalities, yeah. and authorities. Maybe. Mm -hmm. And what is the one ring to rule them all, to bind them? Or one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, and in the darkness, bind them. Bind them, yeah. What's going on here? You're made by the dark lord sauron you're taking all the principalities and powers and putting them 
collectively under one rule. Okay. And here's the argument I'm going to make. Because if, okay, fine, Luke, we agree. All right, there's things unknown to us that might control us as individual people, say our anger, our lust, our um, proclivity to get drunk, or our uh, desires to uh, get money, right? Workaholic. Um, there's these things <clears throat> in us, about us, things that happen to us, things passed down from us that we don't understand, sometimes take over. Okay, and sure, I can draw that out to, all right, there's things in my group, there's things in my, um, if I always watch Fox News, there's things about the world that I'm going to believe about the current political state, about those in power, about uh, where we are headed as a nation. My uh, egregore is going to feed that loop. Sure, Luke, I believe you. Or let's take this side. If I always watch CNN or MSNBC, I'm always going to believe certain things about Trump and the Republicans and whatever. This goes both ways, right? I'm not just picking on one side or the other, but these egregores seem to happen. Sure, Luke, I can follow you. That makes sense to me. Um, Even from a psychological and social perspective. Exactly. Like it's, but go ahead. It's all but objectively proven. You know what I'm saying? Like mm -hmm. we can look at the way, I mean, Social Dilemma, the documentary on, on Netflix, look at that and tell me with the way he described Reddit that we don't create or at least participate in some kind of, be it a literal egregore as demonic force, spiritual power, or in the more materialistic sense, a collective consciousness higher than ours that we create. Mm -hmm. It's there. The question is, is it something that existed before or is it something that we create? And how much do you know about your creation of school spirit, right? Yeah. Your class president, are you taking something that's already there and making it larger? Do you want more camaraderie? Do you want the basketball team to win? Well, why? Well, because then the school spirit gets healthier. There's more positive emotion associated with school because oh last weekend the basketball team put up you know 65 points and they crushed the other team and it wasn't it great the coach is happy and he happens to be your history teacher so he's in a good mood so this is all school spirit okay sure i can agree that thing is real whatever that thing is right there's this weird like physical reality that we have to yeah deal with but then the question is, are these just, like you've said, sociological human creations, realities? Are they there before? And my argument is going to be, if you're a theist, you have to believe in what I would call an enchanted world. Okay? And the argument is pretty simple. If you're a theist of any kind, you believe in a transcendent God. Regardless of how you categorize that God, you believe in a transcendent God. Everyone loves to use the phrase about C.S. Lewis when he says, uh, that night I became the most reluctant convert in all of England. He didn't become a Christian that day. He became a theist, by the way. So just a side note there. You believe in a transcendent God. 
well, you've already kicked the door open to a, a, a world that's not purely material. Okay, so there's transcendent God, and at some level, maybe he created things. Maybe he wound it like a watch and let it keep going. But either way, he's above whatever's going on in the physical world. Okay, and if you're a Christian, you also believe that, that there's a spirit involved with that same God if you're Trinitarian. And that that somehow was part of creation. And that that spirit somehow inhabits us as believers. We receive the spirit. If you're Pentecostal, you believe in baptism of the Holy Spirit where you speak in tongues of other beings or other, or at very least other languages. Okay. Then we, if we take Paul seriously in, in Colossians and, and in, in Philippians about um, the fullness of God being pleased to dwell in Jesus. Okay. What's going on here? The spirit, the God, the transcendent one is somehow dwelling in a, in a human person with the virgin birth, all these things. What's going on here? It's an enchanted world. Okay, cool. So you've already opened the door, not only if you're a Christian, to a transcendent uh, deity, but to a spirit that somehow inhabits all believers, and then uh, that same God that somehow became man, but is still separate from God in some way, um, uh, so eternal and equal, right? Here, here's where it gets interesting. Okay, you believe all that. Well, well, we'll get to this here in a minute, but why did Jesus die? What was Jesus' mission? What's going on here? Why was the world the way it is? Well, there was a serpent in the garden. Was he really just a serpent? Because New Testament writers refer to him as Satan, the evil one. The dragon. The dragon in Revelation. What's going on here? Okay, so there's not just good spiritual forces in God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus, but there's evil spiritual forces in Satan, at the very least, and demons. Okay, well, we see demons possess. We'll get to this very soon. We see demons possess people in the New Testament. Okay, well, what's going on here? I'm not saying that all possessions of Peterson's subpersonality idea is demon possession or spiritual possession at that level. But see, if you're a theist, if you're a Christian, you've already opened this door. So believing it probably shouldn't be that hard. And okay, well... What do we do about Michael the Archangel? Is there hierarchies in spiritual world? Um, what about legion, right? Legion coming from the Greek word of a, an army, but also like the demon, the multiple demons that possess the demoniac. Okay, what? so there's more than one demon. There's more than just Satan. What's going on here? What about, um, oh gosh. Um, what about, is it, uh, Peter test the spirits? Yeah. Uh, let's see. I was going to look this up earlier, but here we are. It's John. Yeah. Okay. Listen, 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 listen. And we'll get back to false prophets here later. Beloved John first John four. Same guy that wrote Revelation. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Wait, what? So there's spirits that aren't from God that influence what we believe and think? For many false prophets have gone out into the world, but this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses 
that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus from God, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Well, there goes your view of Revelation. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. We'll get back to this at the end. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Wow, does this not sound like the conversation we just heard? Yeah. Two secularists. What's going on here? And just to make the point with Lord of the Rings real quick, and the ring of power. I'm gonna. It's 20 seconds. When Frodo tries to give the when Gandalf's explaining, Bilbo has left the ring to him in the Fellowship, and what it means and what it is, and he says, "Cast it in the fire," and he reads to him, you know, what the fire insignia is on the ring. And Frodo says, "No, no, Gandalf, you take it. Listen to what Gandalf says about the ring." Take it, Gandalf. Take it. No, Frodo. You must take it. You cannot offer me this ring. I'm giving it to you. Don't tempt me, Frodo. I dare not take it. Not even to keep it safe. Understand, Frodo. I would use this ring from a desire to do good. But through me, it would wield a power too great and terrible to imagine. But it can't. I would wield this ring and desire to do good. But through me, it would wield a power too great to imagine. Probably because he's a wizard and he's a different kind of being in Lord of the Rings than a mere human or a hobbit, for that matter. But again, the point is, it's wielding there's something him. wielding power through him. Oh, that sounds a lot like possession, doesn't it? Hmm. Interesting. Okay. What were you going to say before I, we get into Heiser real quick? So this idea of, um, Oh, we got to play something else first, but go ahead. Egregore and this spiritual reality being something that is, um, first of all, had existed before, in Vander Clay's words, and something that comes um, that comes into contact with humanity and groups and influences the way. But then he also talks about how they fight, they compete mm-hmm. for adherence. Mm-hmm. Um, and this will tie into something that we'll probably get into a little bit more later. But I don't know if you've ever read the Percy Jackson series. I have uh, not. But as so. Um, it's been a very long time. So if anyone is a, a fan, like a hardcore fan, I apologize if I butcher this, but what I remember from the, the series is the basic concept is Percy Jackson is a demigod, mm-hmm. um, son of Poseidon and a human woman. And 
we can we'll talk about demigods here in a minute <laughs> yeah but what you find is um there's this whole the the, the greek and roman gods still exist in the modern day mm-hmm. and they've traveled from greece to america because now america is the group with the power and so these spiritual forces and the, the, the gods are portrayed as good, right, in the story. But the, these gods, they move and find a new group in a new age based on things that are happening in the human world. And so there's this reinforced up, down, back and forth process that takes place. And I think it's the same thing here with this idea of the egregore is it can take place at one time, but these powers and principalities and authorities of old can then move and find new groups and take on a new life similar to the old, but disguised. And we'll get into that later. It almost sounds like you're talking about cosmic geography, Daniel. Maybe, maybe a little bit. <laughs> All right. Here's what t- set me off this morning. I saw this video. I haven't even watched the whole thing. It's like a meaning wave, like clips from that interview. We just saw portions of put to music and edited. It's kind of fun, but Vander Clay put this on his channel. This is made by a different guy, uh, Chris Pacow. But I wanted to read to you, uh, for those of you not watching and just listening, what he puts at the beginning of the video. So he defines egregore more specifically than they define in the interview. He says egregore, and he spells it out, and he gives us the French word, and then he gives us the ancient Greek word, and then he transliterates it for us, uh, egregoros, and it means wakeful. It's an occult concept. I'm talking about the social dilemma and all that kind of stuff. Screaming about algorithms. He says it represents a distinct non-physical entity that arises from a collective group of people. That's something we heard in the interview. But where it gets really interesting is what happens next. Well, yes, but people also self-sort among people who are like-minded. The greatest counter... Historically, the concept referred to angelic beings or watchers and the specific rituals and practices associated with them, namely within Enochian traditions. Angelic beings, watchers, keep that word in mind, watchers, which is why it would transliterate as meaning wakeful in Greek, namely with any knocking traditions. Now, this took me, Jason, where you're thinking, I'm going to go to Heiser. We're going to talk about the watchers. Okay, I think I'm at the right spot. So Heiser in this portion of his talk about uh, the supernatural seminar he did at Celebration Church, a little bit of intro for you. Um, 10,000 foot view of his book, Unseen Realm, which I have right here. Uh, Any of you follow me for any time know that this is very much in my line of thinking. Uh, Me and Daniel, our first conversation we ever had actually was about cosmic geography. So we're going to head back on that again. Uh, I did take some convincing then and since then. So I guess I've come around. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe, maybe this will just push you right over the edge. Like I seem to do. Um, 
But in this section, uh, Heiser opens this portion where he's talking about the the bad guys, you could say, that we've already discussed here about the Christian enchanted world, good and evil. Um, he, he phrases it this way, which I think is super important for us to think about in this term of egregore. If you ask your modern Christian why the world is the way it is, their answer would be the fall. But that seemingly would be the only answer they would give. Now, if you asked an ancient Israelite, why is the world the way it is? It would be a three-fall system. They would say the fall, for sure. The introduction of separation and death into the world. And sin, but sin, as a con sin death as a consequence of sin. We've talked about this. Romans 5.12. Just poke the bear. Poke the bear. Poke the bear. Anyway. And then they would talk about Okay, well, that's not the only reason things are the way they are. Yes, that was the first divine and human rebellion because a snake wasn't just a snake. I think it was a seraphim, but that's yeah. maybe another argument for another day. I think we've had this conversation offline. Yeah. Second thing would be what? The watchers, the sons of God, the daughters of man. Just because we're going to talk about it here in a second, let me just get to that verse. I think Heiser's going to read it for us here in a minute. But let's do it because we can't read enough Bible. Okay. Amen. This is Genesis 6. I'll read 1 through 5. And he makes an interesting connection. When a man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, sons of God, saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they choose, they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. Interesting phrase. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, don't forget that. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. That's a phrase we can debate another time. When the sons of God, but why were they there? The Nephilim, what are they? The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. When the sons of God, came into the daughters of man and bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. Verse 5, paragraph break. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every inclination of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. So what is the backdrop to this story, Genesis 6, 1 through 4? Because there's that weird paragraph break. And what's going on? was responsible for the proliferation of human in just day. They believed that the events here in Genesis 6, 1 through 4 was responsible for the proliferation of human depravity. They believed that there was a connection between the first four verses and verse 5 because they knew the backstory. Now, the backstory, again, in verses like Enoch, will, or passages like Enoch, We'll talk about the fall of the sons of God. They're called watchers in Enoch's language. And, you know, Book of Daniel. Hey, what are they called? The wakeful. Watchers. Same word. Daniel uses that term, too. We just read that, you know, a little while ago. They have the watchers descend either to or from Mount Hermon, which if you've ever been to Israel, you've probably seen Mount Hermon. You can't miss it. It's the tallest peak there is in that area. 
It's usually snow-capped. We're going to talk about Mount Hermon when we get to Jesus and cosmic geography, because Jesus visits there, and he has a reason for doing it, and he has things to say when he's there. That again, if you know the backstory, you know why he goes there. Okay? He has a purpose. It's, it's cosmic turf. It, it has an evil, a deeply evil association. So the watchers in the Enoch version, they transgress with women and they teach humanity to destroy themselves. If we, if we read the book of Enoch here, we would read something that sounds really close to Genesis 6, but it ends, the story ends with, and when they came down, you know, to mingle with humans, they taught them skills and technologies for warfare, like how to, how to make swords and knives and spears, you know, for warfare, and the art of warfare. They taught them all about plants and herbs to intoxicate themselves, drugs, okay, to produce altered states. They taught them astrology. They taught them arts of seduction to proliferate immorality. They taught them all these things. And again, okay, let's think about this for a second. Even in Petersonian terms, warfare, anger, jealousy, malice, subpersonalities that possess you, intoxication, drunkenness, something that proliferates in the uh, example of Walter White, the, the pride, the hubris that will possess you to say things maybe that you shouldn't say. Yeah. Seduction. Lust, a subpersonality that can possess you and make you do things. Enjoyable, maybe for you and someone else, or maybe evil towards somebody else that caused you to do something. We're not that far away, guys. We're right there. Enoch's, because he's Jewish, you know, he's like, this is, this is terrible. What they taught humans accelerated depravity. It broke up homes. It resulted in bloodshed. It turned their hearts to idolatry, you know, through producing these altered states and visiting the spiritual realms and all this kind of stuff. You know, there, there's a whole list of sins in the Old Testament that you can put under those four categories. The, these rebels are specifically blamed for kickstarting human self-destruction, accelerating it, giving humans more opportunity and more skill in destroying themselves. Now you can just do it more efficiently. We'll teach you how. All right, I'm going to skip. Yeah, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. This also, not only does this remind me of Peterson's language from earlier, but this also reminds me of, um, let's say, curses to the third and the fourth generation. Uh, this idea of sin having consequence that then proliferates itself throughout communities, throughout time. Um, and the counter to that is something quite interesting. God's love to the thousandth generation. Uh, 
So that gets a bit to the solution to all of this, but mm -hmm. yeah, I think that, um, like you said, we can see this in a purely psychological, sociological sense, or we can see this as a spiritual reality, um, but it's no less real in either way. This is horrible. He's talking about how this is how the Mesopotamians would view their mm -hmm. gods, the Watchers, the Apkalu. We shouldn't have random bloodshed. We shouldn't have immorality. We shouldn't be worshiping other gods. We shouldn't be doing any of this garbage. But if you're a Babylonian, you're like, yeah, sign me up for that. Also, where is Daniel when he has his visions in Daniel 7? And there's a Babylon. The wisdom taught by the Apkalu to the Babylonians corresponds precisely to the forbidden knowledge that you'll see listed in Enoch. That's not a coincidence. Again, negative view, positive view. The Apkalu, they also, archaeologists have discovered little figurines because the Apkalu, again, they're viewed as good guys. They're not viewed as sinister demonic figures by the Babylonians. They would make figures of the Apkalu and bury them in foundations of buildings to protect the building, you know, from whatever the Babylonians didn't like. And their name for those sculptures was Matsare in Akkadian. It means watchers. That's not a coincidence. Wakeful. Again, that's Enoch's term for the sons of God who fell before the flood. It's not a coincidence. He's getting it from Babylonian material. The higher gods in the Babylonian... Okay, now he talks about the Mesopotamian flood story. Let's skip ahead just a bit here. We're going to talk about... I had, he has a super interesting section where he, for just a short minute, talks about where demons come from, at least in Jewish thought. And I think it's important. Yeah, so then after we finish with Heiser, I've got two things to say, one about Romans and a class I had earlier today, and then the second okay. about right, so. Okay. Same thing in Canaan. He brings them full circle. Oh, um, so he's in this, he's, in, he's ending a short little section he has on the giants, as you can see on the slide. Mm -hmm. um, but how they're talked about in the Old Testament throughout even the conquest narratives, which is important. The giant clans, the holy wars that Israel participates in. When they go to, he uses the example of Canaan, right? How do, how do the spies describe those who live in Canaan? As giants. Okay, how, are, how is Gilgamesh described in Mesopotamian uh, literature? And how are and the... Qumran. And how are the... Nephilim described as giants before God allows them to cross over and then do the same thing in Canaan he brings them full circle you're not getting out of this deal because th this is, these are the elements of the population in the, in the conquest narrative these must be eliminated because they are spawn of rival gods 
they want to seduce you to idolatry. They want to destroy you because you're my people. You say, well, how in the world did we get into that situation? Like where all these nations have other gods. I mean, how did we even get there to begin with? Okay, we'll talk about that in a moment. That's Babel. But in Jewish tradition, here's where demons come from, the demons of the Gospels, who are not the principalities and powers. We'll see that in a moment, too. In Jewish tradition, if you asked, where do the demons come from? This is it. Because when the Rephaim die, where do we see them in the Old Testament? Sheol. A demon is the disembodied spirit of one of these guys. That was the belief in Judaism. And again, you can read it all through Second Temple Jewish texts. And, I, and I'm sure that, that maybe there's some of you who have heard that before. But again, this isn't taught. Sorry, I have, to, I have to just make this connection so explicit. Working on? No, we decide I'm going to drink my way out of all. I'm going to live on the street. Well, that's an experiment. And where does that experiment go? Now, will I achieve some thoughts and perspectives that I can't achieve living in a house? Sort of level up metaphor that he's working. The the rub is this. The rub is several things. Is first off. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, go to David of Fuller's conversation with Megan Dahl. They made exactly the, the same editing. points there. Now, we're getting filtered by this. I mean, let's not forget that we are participating in this, but you can't but help participate in any of this. There's no other way to process. This is what we are stuck with. There's a case that we never should have gone to Vietnam and had that war. And the reason why we went there was because the sense makers were duping us, for instance. But the fact that there was a shared narrative about what was going on didn't realize it. Thing I'm talking about right now is kind of unprovable. I third Are you looking for the direct demon correlation? Mm -hmm. All the problem of finding truth or sense making. And it's some now, now I want to talk a little bit about that because of course that's been the idea meaning to him with um I know you'll you'll pick it up that bad. It's pretty terrifying and strange. So in this conversation, BJ goes deep and theoretical and introduces a new concept, the egregore, which was originally an occult idea, meaning a non-physical entity that arises from a collective group of people. Now, when he later, BJ calls that a demon. Insured that all through Second Temple Jewish texts, and, and I'm sure that, that maybe there's some of you who have heard that before, but again, this isn't taught in church because you're not encouraged to read the text that Peter and Jude read in Babel. But in Jewish tradition, here's where demons come from, the demons of the Gospels, who are not the principalities and powers. We'll see that in a moment, too. In Jewish tradition, if you asked, where do the demons come from? This is it. Because when the Rephaim die, where do we see them in the Old Testament? Sheol. A demon is the disembodied spirit of one of these guys. And one of these guys is where the phrase uh, egregore comes from. The 
disembodied spirit of a watcher is a demon. The disembodied spirit of an egregore is a demon. Yeah. And BJ literally says it's a demonic spirit that comes from a collective group. Yeah. Are we and, not doing theology yet? Yeah. And that's exactly what Paul says, right? Is I mean, he almost rolls his eyes and he's like, guys, you're literally one step away from doing some pretty spectacular theology and you just can't get past the empiricist rationalistic hump you can get over that hump you're there okay i'll play this little portion then we're gonna you can make your your points real quick and then i have a little bit more to play for us to talk about who are the angels that sin what are they a foil for who do they into the New Testament because it helps them make an argument that some understand it. And New Testament writers like Peter and Jude, they read. Okay, he's making reference to Peter and Jude talking about the Nephilim being bound in chains, which is what they're, where they get, they get yeah. that from Enoch. Yeah. Read some of that stuff and they bring it into the New Testament because it helps them make an argument. In Peter and Jude's case, who do they compare? Who are the angels that sin? What are they a foil for? false teachers. Wouldn't it make sense to equate a false teacher with like an Apkalu dude or one of the fallen sons of God because they were believed to lead people astray? Why in the Gospels are demons called unclean spirits? It's because they don't take a bath? Because they eat like stuff they shouldn't? No. What are, other than like you know, like food laws in the Old Testament. What are some other things that make something, either an animal or a person, unclean? Forbidden mixtures. This is why the watchers are called bastard spirits in the Dead Sea Scrolls, because that's what they are. And they're unclean spirits. I could cite you sources where where guys write their dissertation on the phrase unclean spirit. Where does it come from? How is it used? That will make this point. It's just, again, this is what I try to do. I try to give, you know, scholarly material, make it decipherable, because it, it, is, it is kind of important in terms of the worldview of what we're talking about. Unclean spirits. Jude 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains of gloomy darkness. That's a phrase that directly comes from Enoch. Until the gr- judgment of the great day. A mixture. An unclean spirit. A demon. A disembodied spirit of a watcher. Who, why, okay, so here's the other question. Why do they possess people in the New Testament? I mean, based on the conversation we've been having, well, one, they don't have a body, right? That They don't. They did. They did, and they don't no longer have one. Um, two, I mean, if you're going with this egregore kind of up mm-hmm. down feeding, um, and then Peterson's example of possession, um, I mean that that whole thing takes on a, a brand new light. Okay, get yeah, get to what you were going to say. 
Um, so I was going to start with N.T. Wright. Um, and he talks about, and I think this is particularly interesting um, in um, this, the framework of the egregore. Um, in, he, he has a Q&A podcast. Um, and Ask N.T. Wright to, anything. Yeah. Yeah. Ask N.T. Wright anything. And I've been listening to it. The host, Justin, basically just has a... Um, People send in questions website. and he answers them. Questions he answers them in relative detail, and um, brings obviously the expertise of someone who's been in this field for a very long time, both in a pastoral capacity and in a scholarly capacity. And um, they have a whole episode pretty early on in the series about gender, sexuality, and issues like that. Um, and T. Wright takes a very um, traditional stance on these issues. Uh, but in, in the, the scope of having this conversation, he talks about um, the, the framework of, um, and this is sort of related to that, but it's, it's I think he makes a, a larger point with it, um, is he, he talks about how there are these, I don't know if he uses this language in this sense, but spirits of the age, I guess would be a good way of phrasing it. And how um, he refers to Gnosticism as this, um, this idea of the inner self being the true self and leaving the body behind. And it's very platonic, dualistic in that sense, right? The body is bad, the physical is bad, the material is bad, and the... Um, the spirit, the mind is good. Um, and the Gnostic ideal is leaving the body behind and um, transcending that through the acquisition of secret knowledge. And he then compares um, that idea of the body being bad or the body being in some way incomplete a and prison. this true, yeah, prison and this true inner self being the real me that needs to be represented. He parallels that to certain modern ideologies mm -hmm. and um, a woman born in a man's body. Yeah. Something akin to that. And That's so, literally what that means. Yeah. Yeah. And my and so, inner self, who I yeah. am doesn't inside this body is not with correct the with the physical yeah. form yeah yeah and so um what he posits is that it's a new that's a new form of gnosticism and it's not necessarily and what's interesting right is gender sexuality theorists always say that these are new ideas right? This is new realizations that we're coming to about gender theory and what have you. And those are debates for another time. But I think the greater point being made is- actually, I think gender fluidity is probably the greatest, the greatest example of that. Yeah. Um, but but what the point Wright's making is that that's an old idea repackaged. Just in specific terms of gender. Yes. Yes. Yeah, the inner self has been repackaged um, within a new framework. Before it was the inner self in the intellectual. Now it's the inner self in the gender. Mm -hmm. um, and 
those two things, what's interesting, the more I've been thinking about this is realizing the ways in which those actually, though it's the same thing, they miss each other on certain levels. And I think it's that repackaging that helps the idea not seem like it used to. Um, but I'll say this to make a greater point, right? Then I went straight from listening to him into listening to Vanderclay. And I realized something about the way egregore or principalities or powers or just ideologies. And even if you want to take this from a psychological sense, right? If we are the same kinds of people, right, throughout history, we will create inevitably the same kinds of group thinks mm -hmm. over and over and over again. Um, and in, it, I think towards the end of the video, Vander Clay references this as history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think is really that's interesting. That's the rhyme you're just talking about. Yeah. It's Gnosticism, but it's different. It's Gnosticism, but it's different. And, um, and so I think that it's important for us to recognize because we have this modern sense, this modern arrogant sense that we've figured it out and that previous generations had it all wrong. But what's really happened is we've adjusted and repackaged old ideas. Whether or not you think we're now correct because of the repackaging or adjusting, it's a debate for another time, but it's rooted in something that is essentially ancient. And to take it a step further, in my Romans class today, we were talking about um, Romans 1 through 3, the first part of 3. And in, in the context of those verses, Paul says some, in the modern context, very problematic things about sexuality. Um, yeah, specifically in Romans 1. And God giving them over to their base, base desires, yeah, yeah. something of that language. Yeah. And then talks about homosexuality, um, homosexuality in both the, the male and female sense. Um, and my teacher talked about um, deriving a meta ethic from the Bible, but not necessarily using the explicit ethic of the Bible. And so there's this idea that um, the meta ethic represents something that's good and godly and progressive, but specific instances of the way this ethic works itself out in particular historical contexts aren't good. And what I also thought about in reaction to that was how that seems to be a manifestation of the egregore as well. And how we like to make, we like to, because of certain ways that the Bible frames things that make us uncomfortable in our contexts fed by an egregore, we like to then try to detach and say, no, we're going to point to something that suits our sensibilities. Mm -hmm. But in doing that, we're inherently not um, living in the spirit of Christ. 
we're letting the egregore itself control us. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes really easy to substitute one spirit, team spirit, Holy Spirit for another spirit. Yeah. That's, I guess, the end of my little. No, that was great. Little rant. That was great. Yeah, I, I definitely like the idea of it being repackaged as a new thing. I think that's helpful. Yeah. Well, I wanted to go from the Apkalu Nephilim story to the um, Genesis 11 Babel story. Okay. Because I think part of we talk about the spirit of a nation. What do we mean? We what do we mean when we say that? Well, mm-hmm. and this is if you haven't listened to the episode we did on cosmic geography, feel free. I'll try and link it in the description. But uh, Heiser's going to give the basic argument that I make um, in that. But we never see. School still in here. The third rebellion. This is the Sunday school story we all know, but we never see. Because again, we're cut off from some material. We all know the story of Babel, Genesis 11, 1, 9. What we don't know is this one. When the Most High, again, that's not a brain teaser. We know who that is. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind when he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Wait a minute. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance and divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God? But the Lord's portion, but Yahweh's portion, is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. Okay, when, were the, when was humanity divided into nations? That would be Babel. So when God did that, when he punished humanity because he wanted them to overspread the earth, God repeats the Edenic mandate after the flood to Noah and his sons, and it's from his sons that all the nations in Genesis 10 you know, derive from in some way Instead of overspreading the earth, though, they congregated a place called Babel and they built a tower, you know, to make themselves a great name. So God says, okay, this is like the opposite of what I asked you to do. So we've, let, me, let me get this straight, God says. We had a fallen Eden. You got expelled from that and that meant death and estrangement from from me, your father and your creator. Then we unfortunately had another supernatural rebellion to deal with, Genesis 6, 1 through 4. The result of that was the proliferation of evil and wickedness and depravity among the human population that was so great that I looked down and I saw that every inclination of the human heart was only evil continually. That's Genesis 6, 5. So I sent a flood but we saved a remnant out of the flood. And I gave him 120 years to repent, but basically nobody did. 
But now, you know, when you guys get out of the art and, and, and you have kids, I, I come, I show up and I repeat the Edenic mandate because there is no plan B. We're sticking with plan A here. I want a family. I want you and my family. I want to return to Earth and I want the Earth to become Eden. But it has to start right here. Okay, you, you, you gotta start with the original job. You've got to be loyal to me. Obey. You're not gonna earn your salvation if you believe that I am the Most High, that I am your Creator, I am your Father. You believe that I want the things that, that you want. I want to give them to you. If you believe that, that I am who I say I am, let's get with the plan here. Be my partner. Be my child, be my partner. And so what does humanity do? Now, we'd like to build a tower. You know, be because, because if we build a tower, then like we're gonna become famous. So it's a little more than that because everybody agrees, biblical scholars agree that the tower they built is, was a ziggurat. If you know a little bit about ziggurats, it helps. Ziggurats were part of temple complexes in ancient Mesopotamia. You built a ziggurat to connect heaven and earth and you would meet at that place to offer sacrifice and barter with the god or the gods. A ziggurat, part of a temple complex, was something you built to bring the deity to you. God's like, that's really not the idea. Okay, I don't come at your beck and call. Okay, the, the God of Israel will not be tamed. This is what the thinking was about building, you know, these temple complexes. And God says, okay, here we are again. You don't want to be loyal to me. You don't want me to be your God. You don't want these things. I'm gonna give you what you apparently are asking for. I'm gonna give you a divorce. I'm gonna disinherit you. I'm gonna cut you off from me. I'm gonna disperse you and divide you up geographically and I'm going to assign each of you, each of the nations, to one of the sons of God. And, you know, they're going to get assigned to you too. And what I want them to do, again, this is wider in the Old Testament, what I want them to do is I want them to essentially be placeholders. I still love humanity. I don't want humanity enslaved and destroyed and corrupted and basically ground into dust. And I certainly don't want humans to worship the other gods because I'm their maker. So what I want is I want the nations ruled justly according to you know, my character and my principles, but I'm done with you. I'm gonna judge your wickedness and we're gonna see how that goes. In the meantime, verse nine, here's what we're gonna do. There is no plan B. So what I'm gonna do, if you're not willing to be loyal to me, is I'm gonna create more humans. I'm gonna take one guy from Ur, his name is Abram, and his wife is Sarah, and they're perfect because they can't have kids. <laughs> they're perfect because I'm gonna supernaturally enable them to have a child 
so that everybody knows this nation, their descendants exist because of my power. That's what we're going to do. Are you convinced yet? <laughs> All right, let's skip ahead just a little bit. All right, this is Psalm 82, judgment of the gods that are ruling the nations. Given charge over the nations, don't do a good job. Here's what they do. We, we read it earlier today in Psalm 82. God is judging the gods in his counsel. How long will you judge unjustly? Show partiality to the wicked. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. I mean, you're not doing all this stuff. And, and the result is, look at what's in you know, your people have neither knowledge or understanding. They walk about in darkness. The whole foundations of the earth are shaken. Okay, what I wanted was for you to rule justly because I still love humanity. And I want to use my new people, Israel, to be a conduit of truth to them, from me to them and bring them back into the family. But, but what you're doing is resulting in chaos throughout the whole earth. The psalm ends with the psalmist saying, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. The psalmist wants this to end. He wants the chaos of the nations taken care of. The reason I have this highlighted, again, we, we can't go into this either, but in the, if you know what the Septuagint is, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. The word here for arise in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible is the word for resurrection. And it, it happens three or four times where the resurrection is associated with the reclaiming of the nations. This is just one of several passages. And Paul knows this. He knows it really well. Because five or six times, Paul, when he talks about the resurrection, he doesn't talk about being his ideal weight. He doesn't talk about getting his hair back, getting better eyesight. Or he, when he, as soon as he thinks of the resurrection, he thinks about the conquest of the rulers, the powers, the principalities. He does it half a dozen different places. He thinks of one and goes to the other. Now, again, this is the way it was supposed to work, but it doesn't work this way. And what this is, this is the root, and we'll cover this in the last five minutes here, this whole idea of God scattering the nations, assigning them to other gods, and those gods become corrupt. They destroy their nations. They turn the hearts of their people to worship them. They turn the hearts of people to idolatry. Spirit of a nation. Yep. So my question is, what do we do about this? What does this mean? Um, I mean, I have a few more clips from his next, where he talks about Jesus. And I think there's one in particular that I think is super important. Um, just do, do you have any comments on that at all? Um, I, I have comments on the, what do we do next, but how about you play this video and then we can talk about it. I don't have okay. too much longer, but, um, all right. just let me know. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I'll just, I'll try and be. In your New Testament, you will see when the kingdom gets talked about. He's talking about the kingdom of God and its connection to demonic possession. You have these sorts of events. Or the expulsion of that demonic is not possession. a coincidence. It's intentional. It's deliberate. And I think one of the more interesting ones 
is here in Matthew 8. We're probably going to go a little past 3 o'clock, but oh well. Just drag me away. Dress Jesus. Okay. Okay, in two different passages, he's talking about the differences in how Jesus gets addressed. In Israelite settings, he gets addressed as son of David. In um, other context, in Gentile context, in this one in particular, in um, Luke and Matthew, he's addressed as either son of the Most High or son of God. Son of God, yeah. And he's drawing on why that particular phrasing is important. Oh, son of God. Usually, when people address Jesus, they call him son of David in the Gospels. It's a consistent pattern. There is Jesus or the son of God or some pejorative, you know. But when he's in Gentile turf and he confronts supernatural powers, they refer to him as the Son of God and the Son of the Most High. Why should that stand out? Because he is Lord of the Gentile nations as well. Jesus goes into Gentile places and does things to telegraph a simple point. I am not the Messiah of the Jew alone. I have dominion over territory that is under the authority, at least to this point, of other gods. And they know it. They call him son of the most high. Where do we see that language in the Old Testament? The Babel story. Okay, it's designed to take your mind back by using that specific phrase, back to the conditions of cosmic geography in the Old Testament. And to telegraph the point that the supernatural beings know who this is. Now, I agree with Paul, and we'll get to Paul in a moment, where Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, you know, verses 6 through 8, said, you know, had the rulers of this world, which is a a Pauline phrase for supernatural powers, and the Gospels use it too, Satan is called the ruler of this world and all that. But Paul says, had the rulers of this world known what the outcome would have been, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. Also, what Jesus does when he starts talking about the kingdom, the first time he sends out disciples, he sends out 70 some of your New Testaments will say 72. It doesn't matter because it refers to the same thing. Why 70? He doesn't send out 12. You know, 12 disciples, 12 tribes of Israel. No, he sends out 70. Why? 70, if you use the traditional Hebrew text of Genesis 10, the nations involved in the Babel story, if you count them, there's 70 of them. In the Septuagint, there's 72 because the translator divided two. He divided a couple pairs. That's why you get the number difference. But both numbers refer back to the table of nations that were divided at Babel. If you are a literate Jew and you happen to be either on the scene or you read the gospel where Jesus, the son of David, 
son of the Most High, starts talking about the kingdom and sends out 70 disciples who have authority over demons, you know what's going on. You know what this signals. He is here to take back the nations. I am not the God and the Messiah of the Jew alone. I am Lord of every last inch of turf here. And this is a symbolic gesture to make that point. All right, one more. So at the very end, um, he's talking about what is spiritual warfare. Um, let me, let's, let's do that real quick. You know, try to pick up the breadcrumbs you know, of, of what's going on. You know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about spiritual warfare, for instance. You know, spiritual warfare is about the conflict between two kingdoms. We are never told, you know, I, I should, I think I might have included this, oh yeah, I did. Let me go to one, this one slide right here. We are, we are told to, uh, we're never told to go into certain areas and cities and regions and just yell at demons. We're not told to do that. You know, demons, again, are low-level players. They, inf they inflict harm upon individual persons. But intelligent evil that has geographical dominion and is concerned with empires, like in Daniel, it has better things to do than turn people into sock puppets made of flesh. It's got bigger, bigger fish to fry. It is about controlling people through, you know, intelligent means. How would you control a population in an empire? You manipulate the humans that are in charge. I mean, in that case, they're basically willing idolaters, so it's not really that difficult. But the same thing happens now. Intelligent evil wants to move herds. It wants to control hearts and minds. It's about how you think. It's about big things like, who am I? What's my mission? Idolatry. In other words, being distracted from the worship, from loyalty to the true God, to anything else. It's about self-destruction through the things we do or, the, or that we don't do. Intelligent evil knows what buttons to push. And it doesn't have, you don't have to have a demon behind every, every rock. You don't have to have, well, a demon made me do this. No, we can destroy ourselves just fine by ourselves. But to move herds of people in one direction or the other and toward idolatry and away from the truth, that takes an intelligent plan. And supernatural beings can do this. Again, if I were a supernatural evil being, I know what I would do. I would get to leaders in government and in media. Because if I get a handful of those people dedicated to chaos, that's going to be real effective. I'm not going to work hard, I'm going to work smart. Now, what are we told to do? We are tasked not with, you know, going out and doing, you know, strange rituals and yelling at demons and all this kind of stuff. What are, what are they scared of? I'll tell you what they're scared of. They're scared of the kingdom of God. Because it, in first, in Romans 11, Paul specifically talk, he's talking about, he's talking about the return of the Messiah. He's talking about the revival of Israel. Okay. 
And he specifically says, and he says it in Corinthians as well, that essentially the Lord is not going to come back until the fullness of the Gentiles has been brought in because then that will launch, initiate the revival of Israel so that all Israel will be saved. Again, that's, it's a debate, debated thing as to what the phrase means, but what I don't want you to lose sight of is the fullness of the Gentiles is key to the day of the Lord and the return of the Lord. Fullness of the Gentiles is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. So what we are tasked with is what Jesus actually told us to do before he ascended. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. See, that's Matthew 28, 19, but you know what the verse earlier says to it? All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. It's not just for the Jew, it's for all the nations. Go therefore and make disciples of every nation. It's the fullness of the Gentiles idea. And I was talking to Stovall last night. I think we'll stop it there. All authority. I have. What? I okay. I, I, have, I have this question. This was brought up actually in my New Testament intro class uh, yesterday or two days ago. What day is it? Thursday? Yeah. Two days ago. <laughs> yeah, I do that too. Um, when Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness, what is the second temptation? He takes him to a high point, shows him all the kingdoms of the world. Of the world. And he says, they're yours, which means they aren't Jesus's at the moment. If you, so bow, you bow down, down and worship me. If the rulers of this world had known what they were doing, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have crucified the king of glory. And then what does Jesus say after he resurrects and gets ascended to the Father? All authority. All authority. Yeah. It's been given to me. Therefore, it's my turf. So go and don't be afraid. Yeah. So I guess what's the answer? Let's preach the gospel. But what do we mean when we say preach the gospel? That's a whole other can of worms. One that I have no doubt we will get into later. <laughs> but reactions? Any, I guess, closing thoughts as we wrap this up? Yeah, I'd say um, let me tell a little funny story. Maybe funny, I don't know. Um, when uh, when I was in high school and early college, I worked at a restaurant. And in that restaurant, um, there were rumors and whispers that the, um, the dry storage, which was basically like a really big pantry, was a room in the back of the building. There were rumors that this room was haunted. Mm. Uh, we actually, um, the manager caught it on video, and I don't know if he was punking us or what, but in the middle of the night, one night on the security camera, on video, and I've seen it, again, could have been doctored, I don't know. I saw a box of wine fall off a shelf 
just randomly and then go back on the shelf which is weird right and i saw the video and i was like that's that's kind of strange i don't know how i feel about that i have a very close friend um, one that i've talked to you about several times and he he had been in that room several times close to closing and he said he'd seen and heard things that were weird mm. um not explainable i'm not saying that things that he saw or heard were demons, demonic activity, or what are you, what have you. And I'm not saying they aren't. What I am saying is that I do not believe the world as we see it is all that there is. And I think to work inside that empiricist framework ignores a significant portion of human experience and culture outside of the West. And culture outside of the West. I also think that so-called primitive cultures knew a lot more of what they were talking about than we give them credit. So I think there's something out there. And I don't necessarily want to mess with it, but I am thankful that I serve a God who did and that who gave me authority because I had several coworkers who refused to walk in that room after closing when all the lights were off. And so they would send me. And it was because I knew that even if there was something back there, all authority in heaven had been given to him and he gave it to me. So if you want to talk about practical things to do you want to talk about theology that isn't super heady something that's more in the gut that's it work that authority take the gospel to the people Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 I don't know why we didn't start here, but here we are. But we'll end here. Put on the full armor of God so that you can make your stand against the devil's schemes. Hmm. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. This is Paul talking. Mm -hmm. Against the powers of this world's darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So, and I think this is the point that even the egregore analogy makes. When you're talking to that person that you disagree with about whatever subject it might be that is a current egregore of the culture or community you're involved in, you're actually not fighting them. You're fighting the things that possess them. You're working as an exorcist. Yeah. And have you, so I, I'll give you an example. I have a, a coworker. He's a, he's a, he's a good guy. And we've had discussions and debates. He's an older gentleman <clears throat> in his sixties or seventies. He's one of the tailors at the place where I work. And we've had discussions about uh, current and old um, political 
situations. And he'll talk. And I get sad for him sometimes, honestly, because, well, I haven't lived the life he's lived. And if I had, maybe, maybe I would be controlled by the same things he's controlled by. So his feelings and his perspectives aren't without their merit. Let's make that clear. But you, me, and you have had conversations with people where you hear the anger or you hear the anguish or you hear the um, dissatisfaction, the disappointment. And you think, man, you know, I've had some little bit jarring conversations with him. I'm middle of the road agreeable in this, so I'm not great with conflict anyway. But yeah. the point is, I've had conversations with him and I, I, you know, I'm taken aback a little bit because what I see manifesting in certain times is not him. It's a spirit of anger. Whatever and I think that that's the best way. That wasn't, that wasn't me. me. Right. Right. And I th- and the point I'm making is I have to remember that when I talk to him and when those things happen, my job is not to prove him wrong or to even prove him right. It's to help exercise that anger out of them because he you you get this feeling right when you talk to people yeah. you hear them and you're like oh that's not you that you're you're getting to a level where you are actually possessed by that thing that's inhabiting this conversation this egregore that's that's the spirit of whatever's going on right now because mm-hmm. our battle is not against flesh and blood i'm not fighting him yeah I'm fighting all his anger and his rage about things that have happened to him and things that he's seen and things that happened in his community and his experience and, and all of that. And the things that that has built in him, the, the spirit that that has led him to that has made that, that is, that is produced because of that. And it has then in turn inhabited him. Yeah. Right. And And we all have these things. We do. We do. Um, and, And I'm a firm believer in a spiritual reality. But what's interesting, even about this concept, is if you're not, you still can see how it applies, right? Because you can still see the spirit of anger in a secular sense manifesting itself, right? And and so, you know, if we haven't convinced anyone of a spiritual reality, at least we hopefully have convinced them of some social phenomena that they need to pay attention to and that is real and maybe one day the spiritual reality will become real to them too Hmm. 
All right, well, that's no better place to end it. So, Tommy's look out, tell them, look out for my worldview. Cloudy when you sinking, got you thinking it's a whirlpool. Caesar in your pockets, you can't see who's in your pockets. But Stevie's inner visions touch your eyes and make the world move. Wifey bob her head and make her curls move. Crown jewel is character, and this ain't immortality with fairy dust. Never land, never say, I never gave you hands. If I can't give them back, then you look like.